Well, if you want to find your Bibles and turn to the book of Ruth, we are in Ruth chapter 4, and I'm so glad that you're with us this morning. If you are new here today, my name is Grant Call. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship, and we are delighted that you're with us. We actually walked through books of the Bible. We are going through the book of Ruth, and we're in Ruth chapter 4 this morning. I'm going to give you a date, July 20th, 1969. Anybody know what might have happened? Here's some clues on the screen, right? Huge day, Neil Armstrong, first person to ever set foot on the moon. Remember that? Apollo 11, then you got the uh, lunar module, the Eagle, it finally had landed, and Neil Armstrong in a spacesuit kind of comes out there, and he's left foot, comes off that ladder, and down on the surface of the moon, there's that footprint right there. And then he gave these words that are perhaps some of the most famous words ever uttered in the English language when he said, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. And it was huge, a watching world taking that, that one giant step for mankind. You know, there was a lot that went into that day. It wasn't just like, well, I think we'll just kind of go to the moon today. I want you to know that there had been years of training and preparing and failure and trying this and building and planning. I mean, so much went into that day for that one step. The same is true when you come to Ruth chapter 4. It looks as if this is just an exchange, one step that is taking place in a village called Bethlehem in Israel, and yet the significant significance of what is taking place as recorded in Ruth chapter 4 has implications even for this day. As we have been going through the book of Ruth, we are seeing this journey, especially this journey of God with this woman, Naomi. Do you remember how it starts? Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, they live in Bethlehem in Israel, but there is a famine. God is bringing judgment. It is the time of the judges. One of those judgments was famine, and that famine was so severe that Naomi and Elimelech decide, you know what? I think we need to go and leave the promised land. They decide to go to Moab, which is about 50 miles away. Moab is one of the great enemies of Israel. And so they show up there, foreigners, standing out, and life becomes very difficult, so difficult that for, for Naomi, her husband Elimelech dies. She has two boys that they took with them from Bethlehem, and those boys decide, you know what, I think we'll get married. So they start looking around, and they discover some Moabite young women, and they marry them. And I want you to know, for a Jewish mom, that is a tragic mistake because these two girls are worshipers of the god Kamosh, a god that accepts child sacrifice. And to make matters even more complicated and worse for Naomi, those two boys die. After this 10-year period, neither one of her, those marriages produced any children Naomi hears that there is bread in the land of Judah, and she goes back to Israel. And she's got her two daughter-in-laws in tow, but halfway through that journey coming back, after this 10-year stint in Moab, she tells those girls, listen, go back. There's no hope with me. You go back to your mama. You go get married again. You do a do-over, but you leave me. And Orpah, one of them says, all right, you've convinced me. I'll leave. But another one. Her name is Ruth, and in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, she makes this great declaration, this vow, that she is going to always be with Naomi. 
that she has had an experience of tremendous transformation that Naomi's God, Yahweh, the one true God of Israel, the one true God of the universe, the God of Revelation, that God is now her God. She is transformed and she's different. She says, and I'm never going to let you go. Well, they make their way back to Bethlehem, and when they show up, people are like, going, wait a second here. That woman, that old woman looks a lot like a gal that left here about 10 years ago full of life. Her name was Naomi. And when they approach her, she says, don't call me Naomi, beautiful, pleasant anymore. God has dealt me a very difficult hand. My life is bitter. You call me Mara, bitterness, because that's how I feel. That is my life, oppressed. I went out full, I'm coming back empty. And so they come back, and she is, can't reconcile the fact that God is not only the God of the universe, but He's supposedly a God of love, but she can't see love, so she jettisons the whole idea of God being a God of love. It's in this time that they have settled now in this small little place in the middle of a of the harvest time in Bethlehem, that Ruth, who has made this vow to take care of her mother-in-law, who's basically despondent about this time, she goes and starts gleaning in the fields, gathering grain, beating it out, barley, wheat, taking that grain, and then they'll, they'll use that for food. She just so happens in the providence of God to go to a field by the name, uh, by the, a guy by the name of Boaz that owns it. And that guy, Boaz, happens to be a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. And Boaz takes notice of her and has heard that this, of this woman, this woman Ruth and her great sacrifice and her care, and he makes sure that she's provided for. And all of this kind of unfolds, and we see just the providence of God at work, and then Naomi has a plan. She knows that she's not going to live forever, and there is no way that Ruth the Moabitess, this foreigner, is going to make it unless there is some sort of marriage. And so before she dies, she has a plan that, that somehow Boaz, out of the kindness of his heart, she wants to run the chance, maybe she will marry, maybe he will marry Ruth. She's not looking for children, she's looking for security for her daughter-in-law. And so they concoct, and she has this amazing plan. Uh, I'm not advising this if you're trying to get your kids married or anything like that. We looked at it in detail in Ruth chapter 3, and you're like, whoa, who thinks like that? Naomi does, okay? And you can read it if you're like, whoa, what happened there? That's some interesting Sunday afternoon reading for you. But then, remember, so she sends uh, Ruth out in the middle of the night. She goes, approaches Boaz, and... and uh, and she says, you know, basically through the symbolic nature of what she's doing, of lifting this cover over his feet, off his feet, and she says, it's like, marry me. But she takes it a whole new level. It's not that she's looking to get married. She's asking Boaz to be the redeemer, the redeemer for her family, to carry on the family name. And all of this is like, whoa, Boaz is trying to put this all into play and then think about what's being said and being asked. This is tremendous risk. But then Boaz says, you know what, Ruth, you got the wrong guy because I'm not the nearest relative. I can't be your kinsman redeemer, the Goel, because there's one closer than me. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to deal with this tomorrow. If he will not redeem Naomi's land and not step in as the kinsman redeemer, I will do this. 
So it was sleepless in Bethlehem, and they, they kind of get through that night, and morning has arisen, and we come to chapter 4. And you've been waiting for this for a long time, and I want you to know chapter 4 is so significant because it answers this question, how does God advance His kingdom agenda? You know, if you don't know the answer to that question, you're probably just kind of going through life and you feel like, well, I don't think I have any real meaning. I'm no real significance here. I'm just kind of doing my job, trying to survive, make it through the next week. If that's all that you're thinking about, then you're missing how God uses His people to advance His kingdom agenda. And the first way we see that how God does that is that when His people move forward by faith. Take a look, Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by, so he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So Boaz goes to the gate. Now, the gate of the city and all cities had a gate. That was the heart of the community. This is where all the government interactions took place. This is where dignitaries would come, speeches would be given. This is where all the major commercial business would take place. All judicial affairs all took place at the gates. It was the hub of society. It was also the place where all the gossip took place. It was the gates. Everybody that was going in or out of a town, like in the case of Bethlehem, would go through the gates. And so, Boaz, it had been a long night. I'm sure he had plenty on his mind. He was, I'm sure, real tired, but adrenaline was coursing through his veins. And there he's looking for one guy, the closest relative to Naomi. And there he is. And he says, friend, you need to have a seat right here, okay? And that's what takes place. And then he, verse 2, he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sir, sit down here. And so they sat down. So he's got the elders. Now, you needed 10 for official business. You only needed two or three elders for like some of the judicial activities and judgments that needed to take place. But in a major commercial event, you would need 10. Now, they're referred to as elders. And don't get the idea like just looking for some old guys kind of running around or crawling around like, wait, I need you. Elders was a specific title. Yes, it spoke of age, but it was far more than that. It spoke of their leadership in the community, meaning they had the capacity, the wisdom, the life experiences to lead well. They were stable. They weren't driven by emotion. They had learned through life experiences. They had what we call wisdom, skill for living, and they knew how to apply it in the lives of people. They were true leaders. They were referred to as the elders. And so he's looking, and there he finds, you know, we see him right there, he finds the guys looking for, and everything's in place. It's interesting, uh, we don't know this guy's name, this nearest relative. Scholars have very astutely called this man, the nearest relative, Mr. No Name. Okay? So if you're reading like some sort of exegetical work on the book of, of Ruth, it's all deep, Hebrew, sometimes confusing. They refer to him as Mr. No Name because we never know his name. And so everything is in place. You got the ten elders. You got Mr. No Name sitting there like, what in the world's about to happen here, Boaz? He's like, kind of like wiping his eye and he's getting ready to go. And everybody knows that something major is about to happen. And the community just converges and paying attention to the every word. And so he starts, but not like we would imagine. Verse 3, then he said to the closest relative, 
Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Now, he catches us all off guard because we're all thinking like, what? This is all about Ruth, right? This is about this wonderful wedding that could take place. And uh, Boaz is a smart guy. The, the great prize in the minds of the people gathered there is not Ruth the Moabitess, this foreigner from the Israel's enemy. It's the land. This is an agrarian society. Your estate and how big it was, that was your significance, and that would be the inheritance that you would pass on. He is speaking the language that the people would understand, especially this very close relative. And he says, you know what? Naomi is destitute, and she is forced to sell her husband's land because she needs money just for her basic living expenses. You are the closest relative. You are the goel, the kinsman redeemer. To be a kinsman redeemer, a goel, you had to be a close relative. You had to have pretty significant resources if you're going to buy all of this land, and you'd have to have a willingness to do it. And so, Boaz says, listen, you're the man. Naomi's in need. This is what you need to do. This is your opportunity. And so, verse 4, so he says, so I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here, before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it and I am after you. And he said, if you don't do this, I will redeem it. So everybody's watching, the ten elders, all the people in the community. Boaz has made the presentation. Mr. No Name is like, and he's thinking, whoa, all right, this is costly to buy that land. But Naomi, she is an old woman. She's going to die probably pretty soon. And then everything that I've invested, well, that's all going to be mine. Now, Naomi's husband, Elimelech's land, has probably been sitting fallow for about 10 years. Uh, you don't just like pick up, like, well, just immediately start farming. There's some work that's going to need to be done. But all of the invest that he, make, he makes, why, that's all going to be his permanently and for his sons. And so he's kind of taking this all in. Of course, uh, Naomi is way past the years of bearing any children. In fact, Naomi herself said that in Ruth chapter 1, remember? She told Orpah and Ruth, listen, even if I should have a husband tonight, there's no way that I'd have a child. Leave me, right? There's no hope with me. And uh, he knows that. So he's processing, well, there's a little catch with the Naomi deal, but she's probably not going to be wrong for so long. And that land, boy, that maybe double. Who knows how big Elimelech's land was? That would be significant. You can just see him. He's like a Super Bowl coach processing a, a decision. He, he's just about ready to make a play that he thinks will win him the game, the ultimate prize. And so he's pl- processing this. He's thinking about it. He's thinking, you know what? The more I think about this, the better this sounds. And he is just about ready to pull out his pen from his jacket and to sign off on this, and to basically double his estate. He's thinking, 
I might, it might cost me a little bit right now, but I'm gaining everything. This is perfect. And everything is looking like, you know what? Mr. No Name is about ready to walk away with Naomi's land. But Boaz isn't done. And he makes a brilliant move. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And Mr. No Name's like, what? Do you see what Boaz is doing? Boaz is saying, listen, by the way, this land comes with Ruth the Moabitess, and Ruth is going to stand in to Naomi's place to raise up an offspring that will carry on the family name, that will carry out and have that land in the family. You're just a kinsman redeemer, but you're going to just not only provide for Naomi, God willing, you're going to provide a son that will actually carry on Elimelech's family's name. And all of a sudden, Mr. No Name is like, whoa, 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 whoa. This doesn't sound like that good of a deal after all. And he's processing. Now, people have heard about Ruth. They know where she's from, from Moab. Okay, that seems to be a title that she's got. They know about her character. That's starting to make its way. But they also probably know that she was married and had no children. He had a 10-year track record of barrenness, possibly. So he's processing, you know, it's very likely that she will never be able to have children, and then I'll just get all the land. But on the other hand, there is that off chance that she would have a son. And so he's processing it, and he's kind of calculating this, and he makes his decision. Look at verse 6. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. We don't know all that went through his mind, but he obviously thought about the significant cost, all that money going to Naomi. There was some risk that this woman, Ruth, who would now be his wife, that he would be responsible to care for Mary and to have a child through, why that land would go on in Elimelech's family, and he'd lose it all. And maybe just even the emphasis, the fact that she's a widow from Moab. And remember, there are two boys, and they had both of those boys had Moab women for wives. And guess what? They both died. And he's probably thinking, I could be next. And the more he thinks about this and all the cost and the risk, and that he could lose it all, he goes, I can't do this. So he says, this for me is a deal breaker. You see... It's too great of a risk. He's trying to preserve his inheritance and what he's got, right? But you know what? He loses his name. No one even knows his name. That's why we call him Mr. No Name. He just slips off the scene. Because, see, he's focused on himself. He's not thinking of hased, of love, of caring for others. What would be the best interest of Naomi? What God might want? No. He's one of the many small-minded individuals that just think about themselves, think about life in terms of how it might affect them. He says, I 
I'm not willing to take that chance or that risk. I take a pass on this. So verse 7. So now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any manner matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Now you're like, okay, that's a little weird. And, and the narrator is explaining what was happening. This was the custom. But what does it look like when we're about ready to purchase a bunch of land? We like signed a document. You ever heard this phrase? We got the keys today. What does that mean? We got the keys. Is anybody? That's right. I was hoping that someone might have a house. Okay, that's right. Yeah, guess what? You now have possession of it, right? Well, what they did, the tradition was, is that if you were going to forego being the Goel Redeemer to redeem the land, you took off your sandal and you handed it to the next guy in line. And the, the symbolic meaning of the sandal was that you now have the right to legally walk on this land, for it is yours. It's your land now to walk in, on. I'm giving it up. I'm taking off my sandal. I'm giving it to you, and you now have the right to own this land, to walk on it. It belongs to you. And so he does. And so he passes on this. And verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, man, can't you just see the throngs of people taking this all in? Because I can assure you, this didn't happen very often. And it didn't usually look like this. So Boaz said to all the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Chilion and Malam. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malone, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace you are witnesses today. Do you see that? He is saying, I'm willing to stand in. This is not about what I gain. This is what about what I give. I am doing this so that the name of the deceased, that family name, will carry on. That's what he's doing. He is showing himself to be a true kinsman redeemer. He's the one who truly has hased, loyal love, flowing through his veins. And you see what's happening here? God's kingdom agenda is moving forward. You know how it's advancing? Because his people are moving forward by faith. He has no idea how this was going to play out. Did he? In fact, it was high risk. Sounds a lot like your life and my life, right? We don't know how it's all going to work out. Don't be paralyzed by fear. You move forward by faith. And that's what he's doing here. And when God's people move forward by faith, God is advancing His kingdom agenda. There's something else you need to see from this passage. God advances His kingdom agenda through His people when we move forward by faith and when we trust God with the results. Boaz, it's high risk. 
He just watched Mr. No Name walk away from it, and he doesn't have any idea how this is going to work out. Well, let's just trust God with the results. And so he does. Look at verse 11. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. The whole town erupts in a celebration. This son, this native son, is demonstrating such character, such strength, such sacrifice, and they just kind of heap on the blessings. And notice what they're calling for. May the Lord, Yahweh, make the woman who is coming to your home like Rachel and Leah. You know who those are, don't you? They are the founding mothers of Israel. Let this sink in. Ruth the Moabitess, may she be like Rachel and Leah. May she be a nation builder like them. And do you see how the community is welcoming and enveloping and bringing Ruth in? You see, this was always God's plan, that Israel would be a blessing to the nations. And there's not a lot of times where we got a lot of record of that, especially in the time of judges where people are just off on their own program, disregarding God, super self-centered and selfish. Here you have them demonstrating exactly what they want. They welcome Ruth in. In fact, they say, may you be like Rachel and Leah, nation builders. And notice they first start with Rachel. Because remember Rachel? She had a long history of barrenness. Remember? She didn't have a child for a long time, and it really tore her up. Sound familiar? Ruth has been down that path. May you be like Rachel and Leah. And then, do you also notice what, he, what they said here about Boaz? And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Ephrathah is just another name for Bethlehem. Um, it's better translated, not achieve wealth, but may you like become a man of great valor, worth, ability. This word has been used before, like in Ruth 2.1, they actually, did, uh, Boaz is described as a man of valor. In, in Ruth 3.11, Boaz tells Ruth, everyone in this community knows that you are a woman of excellence. Same Hebrew word, hayil. And they say, may you be this man of great valor. May you be one of great worth. May you become famous in all of Bethlehem. And I want you to know that their prayers are going to be answered in ways that he would never, ever imagine. In fact, we're even talking about it today. And then, verse 12, they say this, Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. Okay, so you have Judah and Tamar. Now, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know like, hey, uh, that's, that was pretty serious. Like, Tamar took things to try to preserve her family in ways that are almost unimaginable, high risk to preserve that family name. And from that offspring, remember Judah and Tamar, you had those twins, and one of those names was Perez. All of Bethlehem, all those people living there, Mr. No Name, Elimelech, Boaz, that's their direct ancestor. And that's what they're calling for. 
in verse 12. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. May you be like a family builder like Perez. May God do it. And they're, they're making all of these great declarations. They're praying. And then verse 13, here it seems like, like we've been waiting for this moment. And typically, as we discuss the book of Ruth or how it might be written about or even discussed, it seems like it's all focused on this one event, this great wedding. But here you have it, and not a lot of details. There's a lot of real estate covered in one verse. So verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And look at this, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. It was God who did it. Their prayers had been answered with the affirmative, and it was happening. And she gave birth to a son. Now, conception, after a long period of barrenness, was recognized as a blessing of God. Only God could do this. And there are other examples in Israel's history, like, for instance, you have Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah, or in the New Testament, John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, long, long time, no child, and then all of a sudden, God blesses with a child. It was a work and an act of God, and so we see it happening. And notice there's just not a lot of details about the wedding. See, in our Western civilization mindset, we're thinking like, Awesome, the wedding. This is when this family is getting started, right? But they're really not starting a family. You know what's happening here? They're rescuing one. This is all about giving. This is all about sacrifice. They are rescuing the family of Elimelech. That's what's happening here. You see, this is a rescue operation. But we're so familiar with fairy tales that what we do with the book of Ruth is we turn it into some like Cinderella story. And in a Cinderella story, you know what happens? This is the moment where the glass slipper fits, right? And the prince rushes in and she saves the little damsel in distress and from this tiresome, wearisome life and just lavishes her with all the chocolate and all the good times that she might ever want, the best of clothes, and they live happily ever after. And I want you to know that if you do that, if that's your explanation for the book of Ruth, you are shortchanging the power of the gospel and of sacrifice. And furthermore, you'll find out this, that if you turn this book into a fairy tale, it doesn't reconcile with your life or mine because that's not how the real world works, is it? You've got pain and brokenness and things that you don't understand. You deal with the difficulties and the great discouragements, and you live with the unknowns and the losses. And it's not like, well, yeah, you have some of those things, but God balances it all out with bringing some of these good things, and it all just kind of balances out here. Don't think like that. You're going to be severely disappointed in this life. And that book of Ruth is teaching us that you will live with the things that you have to hold in the providence of God and God's loyal love and His loving kindness and His blessings. And they exist in the same heart. You know, there are many Jewish people that did survive the Holocaust. They made it! 
Yes, they were separated from their families. Family members died in horrific fashion, uprooted, lost everything, emaciated beyond recognition. But some of them made it, had families, beautiful families. Some of them, from a world's eyes, became extremely successful, made a lot of money. But I want you to know they always carry around the pain and the loss and the great grief. And the same is true for these women. They do. You see, the hero of the story isn't Ruth. The hero of the story isn't Boaz. The hero of the story is God. God of advancing His kingdom agenda. And He's doing so through His people. And they don't even fully realize all that's taking place. But the people are saying, may God do this. And look at this. She has a son. Now, you see, God advances His kingdom agenda when we move forward by faith, when we trust God with the results, and that's exactly what they're doing. They're just trusting God with the results. But third, when you honor God for His blessings. Take a look at verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord, Yahweh, who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may His name become famous in Israel. The Redeemer here is not Boaz, but actually the child that has been born. For it is this child that is her foray into the future. It is this child that will provide for her should she live even into older age. It's this child that will function like this close relative, this kinsman redeemer. And notice they say, blessed is the Lord, Yahweh. He's never left you. Do you remember when Naomi comes back to Bethlehem and she says, I'm empty, call me Mora, I'm bitter, I hate life, I don't like myself, I don't even know if I like God, certainly I can't see His love. These women, can't you see them? They're holding her hand. They're looking in her eyes and saying, Naomi, you need to know this. God's love has never left you. He has provided you a redeemer. And notice they're, what they're saying here. And verse 15 is so powerful. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, verse 14, and may his name become famous in Israel, and may he also be you, to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. They recognize that it is God who is the one who is blessed. He is the one who has given a redeemer. And notice the high praise they give to Ruth. Do you not see that Ruth is better to you than seven sons? Now, sons in that culture... Why, they're the ones that inherit the land, move the family name forward. But they're saying, listen, Ruth is better than seven sons. And seven was the number of perfection. This is a superlative praise for this young woman. May, you see, God is restoring your life, literally bringing life back to you. And notice the astounding praise and accolades they give Ruth. And then just for you, to see the magnificence of who Ruth is and what God can do through his people. 
that when you give a life fully over to God, fully over to what God might want, when you're willing to make great risks, great sacrifices, so that you and I will once again really come to terms with the reality that this story isn't really about some sort of fairy tale romance. This is a story about how God moves through His people in the midst of great difficulties, that He is a God of providence and loyal love. Look at what takes place, verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. You see, Ruth is still not thinking about herself. She has never veered from the vow that she has made. She is living out her life priorities. Do you see what's happened here? This isn't about like, well, Ruth and Boaz and live happily ever after. This is about Ruth giving Naomi that child. She has been a surrogate. She has stood in her place. She has done what, what Naomi could not do, and she gives him her child so that Naomi will have a son to continue on the family name. You, gotta, you just have to pause when you see that. How powerful this is to see the great sacrifice. All of a sudden, we already think highly of Ruth, why, there's just really no limit to consider the greatness of a person fully given over to God and His purposes. And here's something that there's no record of ever happening before or since. Look at verse 17. Naomi is going to serve like the adopted mom. And verse 17, the neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. You see that? A son has been born to Naomi. But here's something that has never happened before. Did mom and dad name the boy? No. Did Naomi? No. The people did. Specifically, likely, these women. They named the child. They named him Obed, which means servant of the Lord. And then they give this family history. And you, you see it right there. It's actually recorded four different times, this genealogy, this history here. But you've got here, um, you have Obed, and the father of, who's the father of Jesse, who's the father of David, the great king. You see, all that Obed receives from Naomi and Ruth, he's the beneficiary of all their sufferings, all their sacrifice. He is the one who will take the past and he will carry it into the future. The lessons learned from these women, the faith that is demonstrated, the great risks, the great sacrifices, he is the recipient. He will carry it forth. And we need to remember this. There are invisible footsteps and fingerprints all over this of how God is working through his people, advancing his kingdom. And friends, the same is true in your life. God is moving His kingdom forward in your life. And perhaps you think just like everyday decisions. But I want you to know that you probably don't have the full understanding of all that God is doing through your faithfulness, through you moving forward by faith, for you just trusting God with the results and honoring Him with the blessings. But God uses the experiences of our, in our life to further His kingdom work even when we're not really aware of it. And 
That's what God wants us to do. He wants to learn these lessons that we are to move forward by faith, not be paralyzed by fear. We are trusting God with the results. I don't know specifically all the situations you're facing, but you've got to just trust God with the results. You move forward by faith. Let's just see what God is going to do. And for all the blessings, you honor Him with everything you've got. And you see, God wants us to live in His love. That's actually why He has given us Jesus, our Redeemer, to rescue us from the pits that we're in. Let me give you like a real couple of famous Bible verses, John 3, 16 and 17. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but what? Have eternal life. For God did not give the Son, uh, uh, God did not give His Son into our world so that to judge the world, but so that the world will be saved through Him. You see, that's our experience as well. You see, in 4.14, He says, He has not left you without a Redeemer. Friends, that's true for us. Our Redeemer is Christ. And so we trust Him. We move forward by faith. We trust Him with the results. We honor Him with His blessings. And friends, when we do, we see God's kingdom agenda moving forward in our lives and moving, moving forward in ways that we might not ever imagine. Certainly Ruth and Boaz and Naomi certainly didn't fully understand all the greatness of the day and the step that was taken. And so it will be for us. We see God's kingdom advance when we love and live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Ruth 4, how it just underscores just how magnificent you are, the power and the greatness of your ways. And Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today who's never trusted you, would they just pray with me now and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin. I need your forgiveness. I believe in Christ, the Redeemer and Savior. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, help us to walk in your ways, to trust you with great things, to move forward by faith, to recognize that you're accomplishing your purposes in the world and we have the joy of being a part of it. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.